begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We're here bringing you conservative insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm Emily Vanderbush. I'm Tommy Binion. Welcome. We um, we have an interesting show ahead of us today. Um, but first, before we dive into that, just wanted to kind of talk about what has happened in the past week. Boy, well, we have a, a really interesting show because um, the last week has been really interesting. Uh, and, and our interview this week with Robin Simcox was uh, was excellent, uh, all about terrorism. But first, this past week, um, the news is reporting that Obamacare repeal is dead. I'm here to say that's not true. Uh, they did have a major setback, a major failure in the Senate on Thursday night. Um, but it's our hope and expectation that the Senate will go back to working on Obamacare repeal. We can get into that in just a minute, but let's just recap what happened on the Senate floor last week. Um, on Tuesday, they voted to proceed to the bill. So they're they're on the bill. The, the only thing the Senate is considering um, is the Obamacare repeal reconciliation bill. Um, there was a series of amendments offered to that bill, starting with the 2015 bill. The 2015 bill is the uh, is the repeal bill that passed the House and Senate and went to President Obama's desk in 2015. So the idea behind that is everybody, uh, well, there are enough senators um, in the Senate who have voted for that bill to repass it. Well, it turns out there was a handful of senators who voted for that bill in 2015 um, that refused to vote for it now. So their position on Obamacare repeal had shifted. They're no longer for what they voted for. That's that's really disappointing, um, considering that that was part of their re-election effort. Uh, but the Senate was continuing to work on the Better Care Reconciliation mm-hmm. Act. This is the Senate draft that we've been running through. Um, as the week wore on, it became clear that there weren't 51 votes to pass the BCRA at the moment. So what they did was they tried skinny repeal. Now, skinny repeal wasn't actually meant as um, a bill that would be enacted into law. Um, In fact, the the policies, if that bill were enacted on its own, the policies uh, may have some troubling, problematic results. It was meant as a collection of things that everybody agreed on that then the Senate could use to go to conference. So the only way to have a conference between the House and Senate is to have a House-passed bill that differs from a Senate-passed bill both bodies motion to go in a conference with one another, and they have basically a committee to work out their differences, and then they produce a bill that that uh, they can take back to each house and pass respectively, and if they're identical, they land on the president's desk. So the skinny repeal vote that was Thursday night, the big failed vote, um, that was basically just a motion to go to conference. Um, it wasn't a motion to go to conference. They, they first had to pass a bill, but the whole point was to get into conference with the Senate. It was It was... Continuing the debate, keeping hope alive that Obamacare would be repealed. But three Republican senators voted against that. Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, and Senator McCain um, all voted to sort of stop the process of working on Obamacare repeal. Presumably, uh, Senator McCain said he was worried skinny repeal might actually become law. uh, But he also said he wanted to see a bipartisan process to sort of work on fixing Obamacare. So the news sort of started to, to, to report, hey, it looks like Obamacare repeal is dead. I don't think that's true. Um, Obamacare repeal is critical to the rest of the Republican agenda. Um, it, it's, it's being done under reconciliation, which is pursuant to the fiscal year 17 budget. Um, they want to do tax reform in the same manner, a, a bill pursuant to the FY 
fiscal year 18 budget resolution. So it's uh, it, it's a sequential thing. And so um, healthcare, um, the Senate uh, hopefully is still working on it. They're considering some more options this week. Uh, but I would suspect um, we, we won't see them pivot back towards it until at least September. But let's hope it happens in September. Wow, that is uh, quite a lay of the land. <laughs> um, so I guess as we turn to other issues that have happened throughout the week, um, I know Donald Trump tweeted something about getting rid of the filibuster. Oh, boy. Well, um, President Trump has had quite a week as he well. Has. Um, on Friday, um, he changed out chiefs of staff. Um, he has appointed uh, General John Kelly, who is an American hero in his own right, a Marine general with quite a story, 36 years of, of experience in the military, uh, a person um, who is dedicated to his country, that much is clear, uh, very respectable resume. He's going to be the chief of staff now. He was serving as Department of Homeland Security um, secretary uh, until today, Monday. Uh, now he's the chief of staff. Um, that's that's quite a development. Um, President Trump uh, reacted to the health care news um, over the weekend with um, you know, indicating that uh, several sort of paradigms might change as it relates to health care. Senators and congressmen might be subjected to Obamacare. Uh, his tweet indicated that might change the debate. I, I think it definitely would. That's a, a, a worthy policy of considering. Um, and then uh, he indicated he wanted to move on from the legislative filibuster and do things with 51 votes. I think that's misguided. Um if you look back at the measures in the Senate that uh, had more than 50 votes but less than 60, in other words, would have become law if the legislative filibuster had gone away under President Obama, uh, this country would be in a world of hurt. And of course, um, it would be a sort of permanent undoing of the filibuster. So uh, no, I think that's a little bit misguided. I think there's just too much to lose. In, in opening up the floodgates, um, the, the filibuster acts as a, 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 a pretty important bulwark against some pretty misguided policies in the Senate. So hopefully that doesn't happen, but uh, quite interesting times at the White House. Very interesting times at the White House. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about domestically. I know we're going to turn our focus to Afghanistan. We have Heritage's Robin Simcox joining us, or he did join us. Sorry. Yeah, that interview was great, wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. Very, very informative. I, you know, I there's just this huge scope of counterterrorism, both abroad and here in the United States, that so many people just don't realize. We're going to play it for you in just a minute. But um, Robin is an expert on all things terrorism. We started out talking a little bit about Afghanistan. We're, uh, we're at the highest levels of airstrikes um, in quite some time in Afghanistan, and, and we're considering more troops. So we wanted to get Robin's perspective on that. He gave that. Then um, we turned we turned to CVE, Countering Violent Extremism. Uh, what did you think about that? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I Admittedly, it is a program that I, I didn't know a lot about until you know we kind of came into this this podcast. But I think he raises some great points about kind of changing the focus of, you know, revamping the program and you know what we're really choosing to focus on with it. Yeah. Um, well, we we will play uh, Robin's interview in just a minute. I think terrorism is on all of our minds, and and, and so having a um, perspective of somebody with such a deep understanding of it, um, I, I was really interested in it. And I hope you guys will be too. I wanted to touch on one more thing before we play Robin's interview. That's tax reform. Right. Um, I I think what we're going to see is the White House, the President, and his surrogates really ramp up their messaging on tax reform. 
Um, President Trump's, after all, he's an economic guy. Uh, he's focused on the economy, jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, nothing is more uh, pro-growth, explosively pro-growth than the tax reform Republicans in Congress are considering. Um, and so uh, I, I just wanted to say I'm really looking forward to diving into the debate about tax reform and, and set the stage, the expectation that I think we're really going to see the Trump administration and the Congress um, focus in like a laser beam on tax reform over the next month or two. Yeah, and I know on this podcast we've talked a lot about tax reform, and I anticipate we'll be raising that again in the in the near future on here. Well, let's roll Robin's interview. All right, and we are here with Robin Simcox with the Heritage Foundation. He is the Margaret Thatcher Fellow in the Davis Institute. Well, welcome to Mass Ave, Robin. Um, we, we're happy to have you. You have such a, uh, a lofty and honorific title, being the Margaret Thatcher Fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center. Um, Robin uh, focuses on um, counterterrorism and national security policy. Uh, he's done yeoman's work in that area, um, testifying before Congress over here and before Parliament um, on the other side of the pond multiple times. Um, he is an expert in such things uh, and lately has been thinking a lot about um, U.S. policy towards Afghanistan. Uh, that, that's cropped back in the news. So we're excited to uh, talk with you about that today. Robin, welcome. Thank you, Tommy. Great to be with you. So I guess just to kick it off, uh, can you explain a little bit about why our involvement in Afghanistan is so critical after all these years? Sure. Well, I think this is something that uh, because we've been in Afghanistan now 16 years, it's something that keeps cropping up, the idea that what is the U.S. mission in Afghanistan? We need to remember that 9-11 was planned from that country in the uh, late 1990s going to 2000, uh, when the Taliban controlled the country, where terrorist groups were able to operate with impunity. So the U.S.'s primary purpose is to stop that happening again. Um, the Taliban still clearly has a very strong presence in Afghanistan. So the U.S.'s mission is about training Afghan security forces to be able to take on the Taliban, while at the same time allowing the U.S. to conduct counterterrorism operations against al-Qaeda, against the Haqqani network, against ISIS, against the Pakistani Taliban and other groups that would threaten the U.S. homeland. So uh, that's that's interesting. You know, those of us that sort of follow the news, uh, you know, read a little bit, especially, you know, about what you're writing, but we're not keyed into this. That's that's surprising that, you know, the, the Taliban is still a a force to be reckoned with, a, a sincere threat in Afghanistan after 16 years. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Why is that? Are we moving towards a time where the Taliban won't be a threat? Will that always be the case? Well, I think for the foreseeable, um, it's hard to envisage Afghanistan without there being some kind of Taliban presence there. They have quite deep roots in the country, quite deep uh, tribal roots there. And so the U.S.'s mission isn't really, it's going to be ultimately, we're setting ourselves up to fail if we think we can entirely eradicate any kind of Taliban influence from Afghanistan, unfortunately. What we do need to do is be able to very much limit their influence and prevent the uh, terrorist safe havens that developed in the 1990s and the start of the century developing again, because it's from those kind of ungoverned spaces that groups like al-Qaeda can establish training camps, which then uh, train the next generation of terrorists to carry out attacks in the U.S., in the U.K., in the West more broadly. So uh, President Trump is increasing airstrikes in Afghanistan. Are those against the Taliban? Are they targeted towards just that purpose that, that, uh, that you outlined? Um, or are they part of a larger effort to sort of, to sort of cripple uh, the terrorist network? I think at the moment it's, they're primarily focused on the, the terrorist networks. But, of course, there is 
an awful lot of crossover there, right? So the Taliban uh, work closely militarily with al-Qaeda. So it's sometimes I think there's a temptation to really try and separate these groups out in a way that isn't always possible because they share fighters, they share funding, they share training uh, camps together. And so it's, it's part of a broader picture, I think. So it seems like right now a lot of the focus has been on ISIS as a great terrorism threat. Um, but you just mentioned al-Qaeda. Do you think that they pose the same level of threat or in different ways? Well, I, mean, I think the, um, the al-Qaeda and ISIS threat is somewhat different in nature mm-hmm. at the moment. ISIS has been extraordinarily aggressive in trying to carry out attacks in the West. It's developed all these new affiliates around the world um, and clearly is the number one threat facing the US today from a counterterrorism perspective. Al-Qaeda has played a, a bit of a craftier game. Obviously, it's been um, it's managed to regenerate its networks. The US killed or captured a lot of its leaders in the kind of post-9-11 world. Al-Qaeda has been able to regenerate itself. It's, um, it's managed to integrate itself into broader oppositions in civil wars in Yemen and Syria. Um, that's given it an awful lot of new manpower. And I think it's also taken advantage of the fact that a lot of the uh, Western attention has been on ISIS to be able to regain some of its mm-hmm. former strength. So it still aims to attack the West. It still regards the US as the number one enemy. At the moment, it's playing a somewhat different tactical game to ISIS. It's not prioritizing attacks on the US the way that ISIS does, but somewhere down the line, that will probably shift. So clearly, you know, our, our presence in Afghanistan now, uh, our troop level, which we're considering increasing um is prudent considering this threat and and your very well thought up uh, thought out objectives as far as that goes. Um, are, are we talking about a, a permanent presence in Afghanistan, or is there an is there a certain um, end date? How will we as Americans know that our job there is done? Well, I don't think it's going to be. I, I think there's knowing the job when the, when the job's done is is a tricky one because I think it's unrealistic in the short term to expect Afghanistan to become a country where there just isn't violence and there isn't the the constant threat of it. Right? I mean, it's not going to be turned into a um, an idyllic democracy that we may like it to that we may you know wish it to be. Um, I think that the we do need to accept that realistically there is going to have to be some presence in Afghanistan for years to come. And I would just offer the the counterbalance of or the, the counterexample of what happened in Iraq when the US withdrew all force all forces in 2011, I think too hastily. Um, a lot of the problems that were existing in, Afg- in Iraq politically weren't solved. You still had uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq as it was known then, which ended up becoming ISIS and within three years or so, you had this declaration of the caliphate. So the, there is a US presence needed there. That doesn't mean there has to be hundreds of thousands of troops in Afghanistan for years to come. But some kind of US military presence is required, I think, in the long term to, to maintain security. Um, and in the past, you have criticized the US's countering violent extremism program. I just kind of want to touch a little bit on that as well. Um, can you explain the program and what its problems are and how it might be reformed You know, in this context? Well, yes. So the US CVE policy is essentially an attempt to um, turn people away from committing terrorist attacks before prosecution, for example, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's a they in government speak, it's in the pre-criminal space. Um, it's a primarily a community-led approach between the government and local mosques, local community groups. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of it because 
there's not terribly clear metrics of how uh, you would know if this is succeeding or not. And it's also involved, the US has been involved in funding and working with some groups that are pretty unsavory. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, there's a, a big review going on in the Department of Homeland Security as to the effectiveness of the program. Some of the funding of groups has already shifted under General Kelly's uh, leadership, although obviously there's going to be a shift in leadership now. Um, and so I think that the there is a the, there is the need to really evaluate whether this program works. It's something that European countries do a lot. I think it's been of limited effectiveness in Europe as well, to be honest. And so the US is is currently undergoing a, a root and branch review of the entire program. So that's interesting. So if CVE is one of those things that sounds great, right? It, it, it all government programs have a name that sounds like it's it's worthy of being in existence. But uh, countering violent extremism certainly fits that category. But it's dubious, right? It's um, it, it's borderline not effective at all, and it uh, and it also sort of targets um, groups really outside of the, of those that that are the threat we want to focus on, which is radical Islamic terrorism. What do we need in its place? Well, there is a. I, I would encourage if if I could put a plug in for one of my own articles. I, I wrote an article on this uh, for a website called War on the Rocks. And it's also on Heritage.org, um, outlining some of the things that may need to change. My personal preference is that I do think we need to focus much more on ideology than we currently have in the past. I think that there is the idea that the the community led approach is is um, prefaced on the idea that um, there are grievances that draw people to terrorism. And so if we work with communities to fix those grievances, then you stop people being drawn to terrorism. I think it downplays the ideological aspect um, a worrying amount. I think it is ideology that primarily draws people into carrying out these attacks rather than poverty and a whole host of other factors which CVE kind of dogma says draws people in. Um, so I think that you need to, to shift that ideological focus myself. I mean, there are a whole host of other things in terms of which groups you use, which partners you work with. I think, for example, partnering with groups like CARE that have links to the Muslim Brotherhood, I don't think is very helpful. There are some in government who think this is a, a kind of sophisticated way of drawing away the true, truly violent ISIS radicals. I think it's it's a program that I saw used in the UK and, and it was a failure. So there are a whole host of things, but I think a, a a more thorough assessment of the nature of the threat and a focus on ideology is is the number one area where I'd like to see a shift. So it was so it, wow. That's um, it, it starts with a wrong-headed idea about what terrorism is. It, it, it it's almost um, forgiving of of terrorists if if there are circumstances beyond their control that led to them being terrorists. We need to go after those rather than the. The ideology and the individuals themselves—that's that's really scary. Uh, doesn't sound like something that jives with President Trump's understanding of terrorism at all. So it, it is something um, Homeland Security is is. You said they're doing a root and branch um, review of it, but it, it's something they're interested in changing out wholesale. Yeah, and 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 if you look at some of the the shift in funding so far of the groups, it's been money's more money's been going towards law enforcement and money's been taken away from, you know, groups which may have, I'm sure, have worthy aims, but you know, the community singing lessons, you know, to counter violent extremism, that kind of thing. The kind of touchy feely projects have been removed somewhat. 
the money's been going towards law enforcement. But I've got to say, I don't think this is... Was there really a, a community singing lesson? Was that really part I mean, of CBE? I mean, it's, it's something to that effect. I'm sorry, yeah. I interrupted I mean, it's, thought, it's, but... You would be surprised at things that could be used to justify CBE spending. Um, I, it looks like there's going to be a shift away from that, but I think it's a, I think it's going to be a fight because there are, the Obama administration was committed to this approach to counterterrorism, and it's not going to be as simple as a change in president or a change in the, the secretary for Homeland Security to fix it all, I don't think. It's a, a long battle ahead on it. The name of Robin's article, by the way, is The Roots of a Failing War Against Extremism at Home and Abroad. You can find that on uh, waronTheRocks.com under his name or on Heritage.org under his name. Let's let's talk just for a minute uh, broadly about U.S. counterterrorism. Uh, President Trump has had six months uh, on the job. Um, certainly, um, terrorism remains um, at the forefront of our minds. How's he doing? Uh, how, how is our counterterrorism? How are they doing? Uh, and, and what do we need? Well, I think that you know that they've remained focused on the countries they need to remain focused on, uh, ones that aren't always discussed very much. You know, obviously Syria and Iraq are the ones that are in people's mind primarily, but there's still um, military strikes taking place in Yemen and Somalia. Uh, Libya, obviously, is a country of concern. Afghanistan, we've already discussed. I mean, to be honest, the list kind of goes on. I think that there hasn't been a massive shift so far, to be honest, in terms of what his predecessor was doing. And that's not a criticism of President Trump. I think it's a reflection of the reality. There's only so much any one man or any one man, any administration can do to deal with something which has incredibly uh, deep cultural historic roots and which has an ideology propelling it, has territory in the Middle East. I mean, I think that the US is doing a good job at removing that territory. I hope with things like a shift in CVE that more a, 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 a change in approach to the ideology is taken. I think that's something that President Trump will be supportive of. But again, I think it's not just about President Trump. You need to get the right appointments at state, at DHS, um, to be able to drive through his agenda. And I do think it would be useful if he outlined a little bit about how he saw the role of what the US's role is in, in winning the war of ideas, because I'm not comfortable, for example, with the idea of of farming this out to Saudi Arabia, right? <laughs> some of our, some of our ally- countries in the region who are allies, but who have questionable, you know, mm. questionable ties themselves to, to some of these terrorist groups. So, uh, or certainly to, to the ideology. So I, I think there is is more to be done, but of course it's a massive, massive challenge for any president. And what would you say should the U.S.'s role be in combating this? Well, <laughs> I think I think first of all it, it should say that because there's many people that, that think the U.S. shouldn't have a role at all that has mm-hmm. no credibility, for example, or that it should it should almost remove itself from the war of ideas. I think that would be a mistake in the same way I think it would have been a mistake for the U.S. to say, well, even just because we're a capitalist system, we have nothing to say on communism, right? I think that the U.S. has a a great story to tell and removing itself from the war of ideas would be a a major mistake. Now, that doesn't mean the U.S. is going to be wading into kind of the fine points of theology, Um, but I do think it's important that the U.S., um, sticks to its values, promotes democracy where it can, forwards its own values and its own, uh, as long as it fits with US strategic priorities, I think the US shouldn't be 
ashamed of saying that this is the the kind of system of governance that we believe in. This is what we want to promote. This is what we think the future is. The future isn't some Islamic caliphate in Iraq and Syria. It's not uh, Muslim Brotherhood-led political Islam. It's it's democracy. It may not look like the democracy we see in the US, but it's not certainly not going to be the the future can't belong to ISIS. You know, uh, I'm glad we're, we're bringing up ISIS. Uh, we, we've talked a lot about Afghanistan, a little bit about CBE. But, you know, one of the things that President Trump really made clear was a campaign promise was we're going to crush ISIS. Uh, you know, he that in every speech, um, he gave us the idea that uh, we would crush ISIS. We're, we're winning the war against ISIS. We're, we're making gains in Iraq. Uh, what's the status of the war against ISIS on the ground? Well, they've – so the – Mosul has almost as the vast majority of Mosul, which was the first major city that fell to ISIS as it began to expand. Um, that's pretty much been reclaimed. Um, the question is now Raqqa, which is the heart of ISIS's territory in Syria. Um, the problem is on this is that it, it's all about generating the the forces needed to retake those countries. If the, if we say that the U.S. troops aren't going to do that, you're then looking for partners in the region who can. And there's just a whole bunch of complications as to, you know, whether you use Kurds to retake traditionally Sunni Arab territory, for example. What's the role of Turkey? And there are a lot of things that the, there are a lot of of partners who have very competing um, priorities. To be frank, about how a post ISIS Syria and Iraq would look, that the U.S. has to try and work with to try and come to some kind of agreement, because I don't think it realistically is going to be U.S. troops who are retaking this territory. So that's why it can, this whole thing takes a while because the U.S. has to try and find these credible partners on the ground who can get the job done militarily, um, and it's not easy. So the U.S. is making progress. Um, I think it's unrealistic to expect ISIS to be crushed in, in the near term because you know they have a presence all around the world now. I mean, they're invi- they're inducing the amount of attacks they inspire in Europe alone. So progress will be made on the ground. Of course it will, but that doesn't mean that ISIS will stop being a factor in by the time that President Trump's re-election comes, all right? I mean, I think this is going to be a group that's going to be with us for some years. Well, so let's just assess that for a minute. And I I, I really appreciated your your sort of explanation of uh, the, the, the problem with taking back Raqqa is um, that we're trying to um, be thoughtful about whose troops are engaged in that, who— because that that leads to who's in control of the territory uh, after the battle is won, um, is that is that the correct tact there? You know, ISIS is is way overmatched by the might of the U.S. military, uh, and so it's it's surprising to a layperson like me that three and a half years from now um, we may they may still have a presence in the world, being as they're they're so overmatched. Um, is that the correct decision to to just sort of wait and 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 make sure we've got the correct coalition before taking back territory and and and, um, and undermining? Yeah, well, I I, th- I think that one of the the example I'd use to to see how badly wrong this can go is um, when Al Qaeda in Iraq controlled lots of um, territory in Iraq in the sort of two thousand six seven period pre surge. The U.S. made the decision to work with the Anbar tribes in Iraq who had previously aligned with the, with the insurgency 
to reclaim some of that territory. When the US left, all of a sudden you had some of these groups that were that were being persecuted by the central government in Baghdad, but no longer had a US backing. And so the groups that the US worked with, they didn't have the support for the post-conflict environment. And all of a sudden you had so they were being persecuted by the, the Shia-led government, and then you had these Sunnis, i.e. ISIS, coming over and saying, we can be the protector of Sunnis um, from, the, from the repression you're facing from Baghdad. And the Sunnis were somewhat receptive to that, and that allowed ISIS to gain a foothold. So unless there is some kind of idea of how you're going to fix the unbelievable political mess that exists in the Middle East after ISIS is kicked out, say... In one form or another, they'll come back. Mm. So we need to. I'm not saying this is this is easy to to come up with the correct alliance, but there is a need to try and give some thought as to what the post ISIS world looks like. Otherwise, the group, in some form or another, will just regenerate. And I kind of want to piggyback off of that because I have heard that you know, as we drive them out of Iraq, then that's where they start to go into. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. That you know, that's where they go into Europe and start you know carrying out more attacks. What what are some of the things that you know governments in Europe can do to you know prevent that from happening as well? Well, yeah, the governments in Europe are very concerned about the fact that you're going to have a large amount of European fighters probably returning to their countries of origin. Um, some of the governments, if it's possible, have started stripping the citizenships of dual nationals so they have no legal right to return, which is one approach. Um, if they do get back into the country, obviously prosecution should be a uh, priority. For those who aren't prosecuted, and there may be more than we'd think for a variety of complicated legal reasons, they absolutely have to carry out surveillance on those that are returning from Syria and Iraq. But the problem is the the numbers are so great. And the numbers of, of, of radicals, I mean, the UK, for example, has 23,000 people it's already concerned about. Then you've got people coming back from Syria on top of that. We just don't have, we as in the UK, just don't have the capacity to be able to deal with that amount of people. And the UK is a government that commits an awful lot of money to counterterrorism. Other European countries don't have the same capacity. So mm-hmm. as much as, as European countries could and should do on the on the a range of fronts to deal with returning fighters, ultimately it's a, a problem of scale. Well, this has been a really interesting look. Um, as the listeners surely know by now, your expertise is 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 very broad and very deep. Um, we we peppered you with sort of terrorism questions <laughs> in in a very um, diverse field. So we really appreciate your being on the show. That was Robin Simcox, um, the Margaret Thatcher Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Robin, do you have a Twitter feed? Yes, it's Robin Simcox, S-I-M-C-O-X. All right. Well, check them out there. Check them out. Check out the uh, CVE article on War on the Rocks. Thanks a lot, Robin. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, that was great. Thanks so much, Robin. On another note, check out the Blueprint for Balance, Heritage's proposed plan for balancing the budget within seven years. Congress needs to cut $3 trillion of spending, and Heritage has found, has found them $10 trillion. To read the report, go to heritage.org and search for budget and spending. I just love that 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 product. Uh, as somebody, you know, my my job here at Heritage is to is to really take the research from Heritage and put it in the hands of policymakers on the Hill and in the executive branch. And uh, th- that product is um, it's it's so critical to what we do. Uh, it's so nice to be able to say, yeah, we, we've shown that you can balance the budget and then some. 
and, and, and we've got these pro-growth policies mapped out in this book. Um, it's, it, it's actually so easy to do that that uh, and, um, the, the strength of that product and the individuals who wrote it, actually some of them went to the White House. And many of the, uh, many of the uh, policies that were in that budget found their way into President Trump's budget. Uh, and that led to a protest here at Heritage. You guys remember that day? We had what did we have? Three hundred or so um, outside the front door uh, protesting those cuts. But of course, uh, that's just the left being the left. But it, it it is one of those places where Heritage has had a real impact is on the budget, and so uh, we're proud of that. Make sure you check that out. And that wraps it up for this episode. Uh, we hope you're not just listening to Mass Ave. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show better. And remember to tune in next week to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. Thanks for listening. 